0: Welcome to Wise Up Governance and Boards podcast, brought to you by Three Wise Owls Governance Consultants. Covering hot topics in governance, risk, latest regulatory changes, and issues keeping directors and executives awake at night. Here are your hosts, Ainsley Cunningham and Deb Anderson. Welcome to today's episode of Wise Up. Uh, today we're joined by Lisa Cameron DeVries from Phoenix Resilience. So Lisa has a Masters of Science in Industrial Engineering and nearly two decades of relevant experience in the design, implementation, and verification of resilience programs, business continuity, risk, physical, and information security, QHSE, and emergency management for organizations based in Europe, Middle East, East Asia, and Australia. These organizations were spread across a large variety of industries, Nine years ago, Lisa moved to Australia where she co-founded Phoenix Resilience. Phoenix Resilience has grown quickly to be the go-to partner for resilience services across the sectors, government, finance, health, education, utilities, agriculture, not-for-profit, aged care and information technology. Since the start of this year, Lisa has been assisting government agencies and commercial organisations with their COVID-19 preparedness, response and recovery. Lisa is a regular guest speaker at national and international conferences and technical meetings. Wow, what an impressive bio, Lisa, welcome. Thank you, thank you for the introduction. So tell us a bit about Phoenix Resilience.
1: Uh, Well, Phoenix Resilience is a company that provides the services throughout the cycle of resilience uh, across the the disciplines of resilience as we see it. We all are about integrated systems. So those um, disciplines you mentioned, Health safety, risk management, business continuity, emergency management, all those things have similar uh, setup. If you go to the ISO standards, they have a similar setup of the way they are structured. It's just the specifics around around that discipline. So we integrate those systems and then go through the life cycle. So we do an impact assessment or a gap analysis, and then the recommendations paper, then we develop the documents and and implement the systems and infrastructure assistance where required. Then we um, do the implementation side of things, which is the training and, um, and any support and communication and changing culture. And then also the testing and the exercising and um, to see if it's effective, what has been implemented, and assist with any improvements that are required. So as you can see, that's the whole plan, do check, act cycle of uh, we follow through. But sometimes we're just called in to do an incident investigation, just an after-action review, just an exercise, just a training program. So, that's what we do.
0: Great. So, um, on the show today, you wanted to chat about uh, collaboration. So, tell us a bit about that.
1: Well, uh, it's it's been um, kind of uh, one of those things that has always really um, stood out for me as, as being an obstacle for many organisations. Um, and um, I've worked for large corporations and with large corporations, and, and when you come in there... There's so many different risk registers. There's so many different silos doing something, trying to work towards a common goal, but they're not really working <laughs> towards a common goal. Um, and and you will see, go to a risk meeting and and you different risk meetings, and you will see some people are. Putting a risk treatment measure in place for something that already the executive knows not going to continue anyway, but the, like the communication is not there. So this point um, uh, made me do research on uh, integrated systems, and that's when I just came to Australia I did that research. That's what I've been presenting on back then, which is a five step plan to organisational resilience, which is all about a concept of how those disciplines come together, work together, and really get a good understanding of their context. Uh, and that's just been like the, the, the threat basically through my career, because that's been going on with all the projects we've been doing. It's about inter- multi-agency response. And then uh, a recent paper that um, we collaborated on was also because this COVID-19 response. What I saw was that um, organisations were basically... Panicking sometimes and taking their decisions, and if they had sat down with a group from members of their organisation and they had consulted them, okay, so what do you see is the situation? What do you see? What options do we have? What, what, and what would that mean for the organisation? What do you think this situation is going to play out like? And you talk to legal, HR, IT, uh, safety, everyone, then you can get a good path to to a good decision because you've uh, assessed it from all angles. But if you jump the gun, then you might have not considered certain legal impacts, certain people impacts, certain technology impacts. Oh, we're all going to work from home. Oh, actually, we can't work from home because technology is not caught up with that yet. Or we are going to do this, but no, you can't actually do that because that's not legally possible, or you can't do that because that's not safe. Um, So those decisions then... You roll them out already, you announce them and then you have to retract them and there's just so much more effective ways to do this and that's why I started as well the paper on collaboration. If you come into a crisis or an incident, just get the right people in the room and really think about, okay, you know, what, what options do we have and how do we make a good decision?
0: Yeah, definitely. It's one of those big frustrations in a lot of organisations where you see um, strategy development is one of them where um, you might have the board and your executive leadership team just being in charge of... Um, developing strategy and then there's sort of a disconnect between the implementation and that sort of communication feedback loop and all of those different moving parts and everything else underneath that sort of operationalises off say one strategic direction that everyone's agreed on and then all of a sudden there's a change in strategic direction and everything else hasn't been updated to reflect that. And so you yes. might end up with a whole heap of old risks on the risk register that just <laughs> redundant. Updated. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yes, or if you go down a new project or a a business development new opportunity and don't update your risk framework with that, then you're just going to miss key risks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, um, one of the things that you see is a lack of training and awareness. So, a lot of people who might be charged with the responsibility of owning the relevant risk further down the line... Uh, they actually don't understand how it feeds into an overall risk profile or risk appetite statement or um, what it actually means to either treat that risk, avoid it, transfer it, mitigate it in some way. And um, yeah, there's sort of a real disconnect there. And I think training and awareness is a really key mm-hmm. uh, driver.
1: Yeah, and, and we generally start with um, doing a context map. Because you know every standard uh, says you have to map the context. And then there's some generic statement at the beginning of the risk, risk procedure. We are a company that does this, yada, yada, yada. But it's not really mapping the context. So what we do, we just look at, okay, this is the, the process in the key steps, the value chain to deliver your product. And these are the support functions that make that happen. So you've got your primary process, we call it in engineering, and then your support process like HR, finance, and any of those sort of things. You saw that in the paper as well. Um, how they interrelate to each other. And, and if you can map that, then everyone can see how it fits together and then you make people responsible for certain aspects of the risk. And that's what we do in our risk register that um, instead of having this long page that does have a column with who's responsible for it, which kind of makes it hard to you know, get that set, we make each page for each risk owner and uh, that's their page that they own, with risks in relation to the supply chain and all internal risks, but that's their bit, and, and they understand that in order to achieve these things or to treat those risks, it, they are dependent on others, because that's always hard, but I, it's, I, it, I don't totally own this. <laughs> yes, but you still depend on others. But by having that page, that they own that page, and then they've, it's very clear, I'm responsible for this, it says clearly the scope, these risks are in there, and then they come together with that group, and everyone talks about their page, which covers the whole organisation, because you've done your context map. And um, uh, they have to talk about and integrate those risks. So, that's across business units, as well as disciplines. So, then you make sure that it's all integrated. Yeah. So
0: Definitely. And I think, too, when you have the board sort of set the appetite from the top-down approach, and then you've sort of got this bottom-up approach for risk ownership, it's sort of the bit in the middle that's not really quite gelling. Mm-hmm. And as risks become splintered throughout the organisation, there's sort of no high-level owner. So, as you say, if you have it sort of on one page, um, there becomes an ultimate risk owner to sort of have that reporting line back up to the board on um, risk appetite and also um, tracking that to a strategic goal. And you know, what at what point are you at risk of not being able to achieve your strategy? Yes, is really where it comes back
1: to. And that's always an interesting one, because, for example, health, to take health and safety, on a strategic level, the executive are responsible that the, the resources and the time and the knowledge is available to uh, maintain a health and safety management system, for example. That's a strategic objective. Now, the people then, within their risk registers have to make sure that they don't introduce any hazards, and whatever they do, they mitigate their hazards. That's their operational level. So it, it, you can't say health and safety risks sit with the health and safety person, No, with the, the ability to have a management, an effective uh, health and safety management system, that sits with the executive. So the risk is that they don't have one or that you know, it's not being achieved. And then the, that other component sits within each operational division. Mm. So I think that's a, that's a good way to, to explain it, because that's always a difficult one where people just go, oh, you're the health and safety, the health and safety sits here. Because if you look at those, those risks, because I used to work for a military contracting company and, um, and we worked in, in very hazardous areas, uh, like like operating in Afghanistan. So you've, you're, you're looking at risk now. There's risk where we had um, multi-casualty terrorist attack, air crashes, incidents, supply chain disruption, product quality issues, uh, all sorts of things like the, the, that go wrong. The, those risks of those things occurring have an effect on your uh, on your. Um, it could have legal impacts, operational impacts, financial impacts, reputational impacts. So you can't say that um, uh, a terrorist attack sits in the emergency management side or something. Yes, that's the response. That's a risk treatment. But the risk of it occurring and having those systems in place, making sure that you're prepared, goes all the way from the top down.
2: So in your experience, how do you instil, from a cultural perspective, the importance of risk management?
1: Um th- th- I always try to make it relevant to that specific organisation. So we work with a lot of different organisations, from uh, NGOs organising events to uh, investment funds to power companies. To like, So you have to contextualise it to that. So, for example, take uh, an NGO um, organising an event. Um, they're, they're, for example, very well-meaning people, often volunteers, um, with maybe limited risk awareness. They think, oh, the risk is tripping or falling over. Okay, so then we start with... Before we do any design of risk management or any risk registers or whatever, we do the awareness workshop where you put on these news stories of things that go wrong on events, what the consequences are of that, what the implications are. And especially for an NGO, if you're trying to raise money and unfortunately somebody tragically gets hurt in in that process, that's your brand that you will never be able to, like people don't want to give to a charity that's associated with, with such a horrible thing, so that's the whole future of your charity, compromised by, so, by something that so could easily occur because there's so many events and people so en- enthusiastically go, oh, we'll all put so many people on a bicycle and just send them on their merry way. But, you know, there's a lot of risk that, that, um, that can come with that. So the organisations that we work with luckily uh, recognise that. And then we get the rest of the team on board by doing first that awareness and showing all these risks that are out there. And then they're quite going, for a bit there, they get the whole, this is terrifying. How are we going to do this? And then you take them on the journey to implement the risk treatment strategy. So you show them, okay, so which one are your highest risk, which one are lower ones. These are all the opportunities you have to treat your risk, uh, and, and these are the things we're going to put in place. And then you start people to get excited about, okay, yeah, I'm going to do this briefing, and then I'm going to tell these people, and, oh, yes, no, and I bought these safety vests. And, and, and people start to get really enthusiastic because they see their risk ratings drop, and then they get rewarded. If it, And that's what we always explain in management. Okay, that's excellent. So they get positive feedback for treating their risk ratings. Um, treating their risks, and and then you slowly start to see a whole risk culture, and those customers that um, uh, what we like to call the partners, because you know you start off, for us it's a, a real ongoing relationship of a friendship. But um, you, you come in there now, and the people are excited to tell you about oh we've now implemented this and that, and they've just taken your ideas and on and on a whole you know next level. Um, of risk treatment, and that is just so, so good to see. I've, I've literally seen the, the biggest doubters of risk management get completely enthusiastic about risk management and seeing that it has a benefit for their organisation, that you actually, um, because people during these risk meetings get the opportunity to also to share some of the concerns that they have, and they have really good concerns, as in everyone should be aware of that, because you can easily do something about that when you raise it in a meeting three months before the event. But some people, are they wouldn't raise it if they didn't get that platform because, you know, nobody wants to be that person that says, oh, are you sure about that if the CEO is really excited about an idea? But if there's this risk place where everyone can say, well, I think that I'm concerned about this, and that's being acknowledged and recorded somewhere and then maybe addressed, and then you see that people go, oh, this is actually really positive and good. And, and so that positivity and that people see that this really works for me and then because the director sees that, then the... the, the you know, it works through everything and they see that there's positive outcomes and, and that they see the value increase of their own business because they're mitigating all these risks. So I think that's, um, that's really what it's, what it's
0: about. Do you see any um, directors or boards or even executive um, teams become negative towards risk when they see that the um, cost treatment is potentially outweighing the benefit in their eyes? Well, that's always a good one because um, I do...
1: Th- and that always comes down, again, to um, knowledge and um, training and awareness and, and experience because the person might be appointed to design the risk treatment strategy, might not necessarily be the person that um, has the most experience or knowledge on the best option and might go with a really expensive option. And and um, so I think it's good for boards to say, okay, have you done your assessment of different options where's your options analysis to treat this risk um, and and if you delve into that then don't just accept it and go down an expensive path because often it doesn't need a, an expensive measure um, and I think that that's, uh, that that's very good so it could I think that's maybe sometimes where it's lacking in the presentation for, for a risk treatment strategy.
0: Yeah, I think too, um, a lot of um, risk owners undersell the benefit to the board.
1: Yes, and that's another one. Mm. You have to be really good at that. Mm. And if you're a, a technical person, um, you might not necessarily – you just have that in your head you know, some people are just really not good at explaining something. Mm. They have it all in their head, and to them it makes perfect sense. But if, you, if that's not your daily job, you need to be really talk, uh, talked through what the benefits might be and, and how this will uh, benefit the organisation in the short term, medium term, long term. And, and you need to have that strategic vision. That's a lot of skill and knowledge and experience, or even a skill that some people will never have, uh, that you have to have in order yeah. to get that across the line.
0: It and almost even yeah. becomes a sales pitch.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's what I'm saying. So the person that will get the most funding for their project might not be the one that has the best project, but just yeah. the one that's the best at sales. selling it. <laughs> so that's why not always the people that have the highest salary are the people that are best at their jobs. They're just better at selling themselves.
2: <laughs> Do you find that clients come to, come to you reactionary? So they've had some episode and they um, reach out to you because they need help, or are they being more, more proactive and seeking help at an earlier stage? Um, it, it
1: varies. There's one group that comes to us because they were told by a board um, or they were told by a regulator that they needed to up, update their system. Then there's the group that is concerned about risk and doesn't feel that, as a, as a leadership team, feel that they're not addressed sufficiently. So that is great because then it's... They recognise it and they want to do it. So that's a really good starting point. Uh, and then the third one is um, when uh, there's been an incident or a, or a looming disaster. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, it's all about really getting a quick understanding of what the situation is. But we, we, like that's the most difficult one, clearly, because damage has been done. And then it's just about mitigating the consequences.
0: And how do you find, um, you know, when you go in and work with teams and you position risk and you raise their level of awareness and you kind of help them... Um, sort of analyse all their risks and develop risk registers and things like that. Do you find there's a real struggle there in terms of a knowledge piece of um, how to really draw out from them around their lead and lag indicators that will kind of um, be industry specific, that will help them sort of um, map risk in a more active risk management framework?
1: So that you're saying that they, uh, when there's a change that they understand how that could influence which factors could increase the risk? Which factor could reduce the risk?
0: Uh, more so, it? which ones will help highlight the risk? So, say mm-hmm. if um, you're sort of going on a risk trajectory, you've got um, you've taken a certain level of risk appetite. You might be in sort of an amber zone of risk, and uh, you might be um, have sort of indicators there that you've got to be monitoring from a risk reporting perspective, and um, a lot more lead indicators. So, in terms of being in the forefront of Uh, that risk sort of coming into fruition so that they can get on it quite early and reduce that risk as it's sort of coming into, say, maybe a red zone or even a catastrophic level. um, Do you find that's quite difficult to uh, get organisations to increase their awareness of?
1: Well, that's the whole point, what we started with the uh, five-step plan to organisational resilience that is about the awareness and that's the, 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 the tool that's in there is all about um, raising that awareness and having that monitoring capability. That's also the first thing we do. You have to have a monitoring capability within your organisation that understands if this changes, then our risk profile changes. So, for example, um, in the taxi industry, this is a very much used example, but in the taxi industry, people could have known if they had a monitoring capability, oh, this technology is coming up, oh, these apps are coming up. There will be a competitor entering the market in a totally different strategy. Um, so when Uber came into the market, but but there was not such a monitoring capability. No one, everyone was going taxis will be taxis, there will be taxis forever, and this will just be that. Um, and they were just, it came like a complete surprise to the taxi industry. While if if somebody was monitoring, if if I was running a taxi business, it wouldn't be monitoring. Okay, that's what technology is going this way or. You know, these developments are coming up. Or if they apply that in in, in the tax industry, oh we, we could be in trouble. So maybe think about uh, having apps in our business and and going on that technology train um, early as well instead of completely reactive, uh, asking for government handouts and 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 you know com- being all upset about what's what's happened to them. every business is going to go through a major disruption at some point. That is your responsibility as a business owner or an executive that you are aware of, of, of those potential threats that, that could occur and that you are monitoring them and that you have a capability in-house to, if this changes and that happens, then this increases our risk profile in this way and the consequences could be this. We need to take action, yes or no. Yeah. To say it very, very simply. Um, and, and that is complete key because we always say the earlier you detect a, a change that could potentially cause a problem, the more time you give yourself to prepare for it. And it doesn't have to be some complex thing. It doesn't have to be, oh, we immediately have to invest lots of money. But it, like with this, with this Uber thing, if you're early, in, you can come up with a strategy. You can get really smart people together. You can really think about what your competitive strategy could be. Where are we going to be for the future? What's the future going to look like? And all those things really should, should be in place. Um, So that you don't stand there with your head in the head going, what happened?
0: (laughs) I think you see that a lot too with um, change management. When you get a new uh, CEO or a new board or a new management team, they sort of come in and want to um, clear the decks and review strategy sort of more of on a holistic front, um, reviewing that macro environment and things like that. Whereas um, if you have, I guess boards and ELTs that have had a long tenure, they really become complacent and they become so firmly fixated on their strategic vision that they don't want to see um, in the peripherals what else might be coming into the horizon and um, really gets missed.
1: Yeah, and also a lot of, um, and that's just human nature, work off the things that they've experienced. So if you've been through a flood, you're focused on flood. If you've been through a terrorist attack, you're totally focused on that. If you've been through this experience of a cyber attack, for example, then you know what needs to be in place to be prepared for cyber attack. If it never really happened to you, then, oh, yeah, you're kind of... It's difficult if somebody comes to present to the board, yes, we put this and this in place to really scrutinise that if you've not really been through it because you don't really know what maybe the right questions are to ask. So in that case, and that's a very, very difficult task for a board because they need to be across all the things that could potentially go wrong with an organisation and also be across what an organisation should have in place to mitigate those specific things and the current environment like with pandemics and terrorist attacks and uh technology complete reliance on technology i mean the you know the the threat horizon is, is very very significant so that's always a challenge for a board to to be across all those different things that can go wrong and, and really scrutinize what someone's telling them that it's being done because now, clearly, everyone's going to sit there, yeah, that's really, really fantastic. And that's why in business continuity and emergency management, we do testing of everything. Okay, you say you can send out a bulk, test, a bulk text to all customers. Okay, well, can we test that? Or at least to the whole incident management team, can we test that, that that actually works? Or um, when we send everyone home to work from home, can we test that, that actually all those people can log in at the same time and, and have access and that can function and, and and does that really, really work? And when most, I would say, maybe 99 out of 100 times it doesn't.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think a lot of organisations just do, you know, desktop or soft testing of their BCP and DRP, except they don't really actually do that uh, sort of hard live tests um, regularly or if at all. It's just
2: been enforced on everybody recently. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it <hasn't actually>. yeah. <laughs> it's a, How effective is your BCP? What is yeah. your BCP?
1: Yes. Yes, now, now everyone will... And then that's the thing now because everyone in an executive role and a board role has now been through this, they've seen it so now all of a sudden they realise uh, especially now, the importance of a good robust business continuity plan um, that is is ready to deal with a, a disruption of any size and scale and complexity but then it comes all down to having an agile system because in no way should I ever promote that you should have a 500 page business continuity plan that thinks of every possible scenario that could go wrong. It needs to be something that's really flexible and agile that is able to deal with any specific situation because as we now know, no situation is ever going to play out exactly like you have planned. <laughs> it, and so where people said, oh, no one will ever be sent home for two months or no one, uh, the internet will always be here or um, you know, those sort of things, are so your business can those assumptions that are being made. But there's so many different Disruptions, oh, I have no internet or I have no this or that. It just needs to be an agile uh, plan that's able to respond to a, a, a disruption or an incident, as we um, also talk about, um, uh, of any size, scale, complexity. Um, because uh, those long plans, <laughs> they're the worst. I think people get a bit <laughs> complacent, don't they?
2: You, you, ha- you have your your business continuity plan in place and you go, oh, put it put it in the drawer and forget about it. But this has just um, brought to the fore how important that they are.
1: And what I find most um, uh, remarkable, because what large organisations generally do is um, they they determine, okay, what are the critical services maybe for the next week, two weeks, three weeks maybe, Uh, and then send that down to the business units and they complete their own BCPs in isolation. Now, Correct me if I'm wrong. There's a value chain going through an organisation, right? You can division A cannot do without input from C and input from B, uh, and and then D needs something from that in order to have for that value chain to deliver something at the end, right? So how can you develop BCPs in isolation, and then think that that's magically going to work? <laughs> And you have these massively long BCPs. You go into this organisation and each division has this massively long BCP. Well, all you need is this overarching business continuity capability that is able to understand, okay, this is a type of disruption. These are our recovery priorities for an organisation and then cascade that decision-making down. That's in my opinion because that's just much more flexible and agile.
0: Well, it's more user-friendly too. Like, How many times do you see... IT departments suddenly get charged with the responsibility for managing it and you go, so no, actually what happens is you have a risk manager, you have potentially a CEO, representative from the board, and you position those teams, that crisis response team, based on the situation at hand and that's... Um, that's different. Yeah, it's different <laughs> every time, right? Like if it's an IT system, yeah, definitely get the IT guy. If it's... Um, is something else a HR situation? Then definitely a HR person needs to be involved. If it's a people management situation or yeah. um, prevention of access, you might want more the office manager. Or is there a, a alternative location that they can set up or things like that? So yeah, it's definitely got to have um, the flexibility to be able to call yeah. on those response teams. Um.
1: Yeah, and and a good one as you mentioned with the IT because we see that a lot. For example, um, uh, one of the key systems has an outage. The IT department will put their heads in their computers to try and fix it. But somebody needs to look up and go, this system is out. That means that this, this this one might also be out. That means that we can't deliver these and these services. That means we have to communicate to these and these people. That means that we might not meet these legal requirements. That means, you know, the, and, and have that sort of thinking and then update the executive. Okay, we're doing this, we're having this in place. Because if you don't start updating on what's going on, they all start coming there. So you're sitting in your IT department trying to get this system back up, and there's the, the CEO, and there's the director of this, and there's the director of that, all going, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on. So you need to have that over sorry you need to have that overarching capability to, um, to that has that incident management capability to understand what communication needs to go out, how decisions need to be made, so that the people that can fix it, um, which can be the infrastructure people, the facilities management people, the IT people, that they can sort it out.
0: Yeah. And I think, too, what you find is um, a lot of the time they don't even have a draft communication plan. And so then they're scrambling to say, well, what sort of messaging do we need? And who should release it? And where should we release it? We should it? approve and, it. Yeah.
1: And before you know it, some's gone out and it hasn't been approved. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> we've seen that, for example, what was it, the Dreamworld um, event, where, what um, was it, day two, they announced, oh, we'll be open on Friday and it will be, well, the money will be donated here and there. Um, actually it's a crime scene and you won't be opening for uh, a while. And so this communication has gone out. It has not been at all, in my opinion, probably approved or really sanity checked by the incident management team Um, because otherwise you would know that that's not an option, uh, that you can actually do that. So then, we see that all the time. People jump the gun, start saying all sorts of things to promises and we're going to do this. Well, it's just probably best to say, okay... We have had an incident. We're assessing all the options. And if you don't have a solution, don't make one up. <laughs> Just say that. We're working very hard on it and we acknowledge what has happened.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think honesty sort of comes yeah. into it there. Absolutely. Yeah. So in terms of your um, improving resilience in the aged care sector, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Uh, well, we've been fortunate enough, because I'm really passionate about this, clearly. These are very vulnerable uh, members of our community and... Um, uh, they are in a very vulnerable position, uh, and if people don 't come to help them they then they won 't be able to help themselves and there 's all sorts of things that can go wrong clearly um uh, for for in aged care, but we saw now pandemic, but also fires bushfires uh, floods um, in in the u s we have seen horrific uh, photos of um, aged care residents sitting waist high in uh, in uh, flood water um, and, and those horrific things so uh, the, the thing with age, an aged care facility, the resources they have available to them is clearly not to the level that they're independently able to respond to uh, to an incident of any scale because that's unaffordable. So they would not be able to evacuate all the residents within the set time frame. Like if a bushfire is coming and you have three hours and you have 300 residents, no facility has the, the, the ambulances and all that available to get those people out. And we have learned from previous events that there may be limited ambulances available anyway, because if they're responding to other facilities, if it's three facilities under uh, threat at the same time, they might not be able to respond. So those sort of um, contextual uh, you know, considerations are critical in the emergency planning. There's not just one size fits all. Oh, we'll get them to the front door and somebody will magically come and get them. Because that's how a lot of plans work. We'll get them to the front door and then emergency services will take over. But we've seen in the past they are... Doing other things, they maybe have one ambulance if you're lucky, and that it's just is not going to work. So what we've also seen is that they turned up to evacuation centres with their residents. Now that's also something that if if you do planning beforehand, realise uh, because residents living with dementia need to be in a secured perimeter. You cannot offer that in an evacuation centre, so they pose a threat to the public in the evacuation centre, as well as to themselves. They get very distressed. So then you need medical staff there. The requirements for... um looking after the, the age clearly they've got uh, medical uh, records that they need they've got all sorts of specific requirements around sanitation and treatment and 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 uh, f- f- feet uh, like the type of food that they can have the type of drink that they can have it's like it's endless requirements so an evacuation centre is completely unacceptable place for um, aged care residents if they're high care to to go so that was all recognized so a lot of councils went through the idea of um, d- doing a multi-agency approach and we were lucky enough to assist one of the regional councils um, here in Queensland uh, to get in the room um, aged care facilities uh, and and their critical supply. So you're thinking of medical centres, hospitals, GPs, uh, Queensland Health, um, emergency services, uh, the ambulance, uh, QFAS, and and all get them in the room and, and talk about, Okay, so these are the kind of resources we have available in this particular region. Um, this is what our response would be, this is type of threats, and really come up with, uh, with a group and, and build those relationships so that they understand, OK, there's three ambulances in this region, there's five aged care facilities. Uh, if there's a large like a flood coming through at, at a rapid pace, we'll be pretty much on our own. So can we maybe collaborate between the aged care facilities? Because for this particular case, there was a river in the middle, and if it floods, the staff or the one facilities on the one side, but the staff the other facility, so if their staff either can't come to their facility, but if they could share with the other facility, they could keep them running, right? So those sort of things you only identify by sitting all together in a room. And the same with with medical centres and how you can do workarounds if there's a disruption with, with food supply and any of those sort of things. So when COVID-19 was um, just starting to come on the radar, we got that same group together and came up with an incident action plan for for this particular scenario, and where all the contacts are in there, this is our responses, and that they're all on the same page, and you report to health like this, and you, we, if you have an issue, you, you we set in different levels of, um, of criticality in their response. So if you're running out of PPE, then you get to this level of criticality. If your staff gets sick to this much percentage, then you get to... So that all um, aged care facilities have a a rating of that criticality so that the local disaster uh, coordinator can see, okay, this is where I'm at, kind of a dashboard, I suppose, uh, and, and can see which aged care facilities are starting to struggle so that you can be really proactive in coming up with measures instead of somebody rings one day going, uh, uh, I'm run out of all stock, all my staff's sick, uh, uh, I need an evacuation now. So like we saw at the Earl Haven facility, no one was aware what was going on there until the staff walked off the job, literally left those people behind, yeah. and somebody called the emergency services. Not even those people, somebody. <laughs> like, that is, we never want to get to that point. Okay, so that's for- why we want to get all these groups together going okay, so if there's a dispute between a, a service provider, human resource mm-hmm. provider, that it's detected early and that the systems are in place between all these facilities to assist each other and with emergency services and with local providers to, to come up with a quick response so that these residents never... like. I mean, people were walking like, through the hallways with like saw themselves. It, it was horrific. It was horrific. And it, in this day and age, we can never let it get to that point. So most councils, luckily, are going through this path. We've been so fortunate to be part of that um, for, for this particular um, council... And um, I think that that's the way to go. But I think that's the way to go for a lot of organizations, understanding that you're part of an ecosystem and, and working with those partners because that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about as well is about just doing the right thing about your partners, your suppliers, your service providers, all the organizations that I worked for and worked with, make sure that you have these really close relationships and, and, and you help them, they help you. You'll be uh, like available every time. Because those are the people that when the chips are down will also be there. And that's been for me. I needed some a graphic design on, on Saturday night for a proposal for Monday morning. And because I have such a close relationship with all our partners, I can get that done. But they would do this. I would do the same for them if they need me for something else. And I think that, close, that ecosystem where you know you all need each other to get to the other end. Um, I think that that's... Um, that's recognizing that is is very much crucial in in how you survive and thrive through <laughs> crises.
2: <laughs> absolutely, I think you see that, like in New York and Central Park, where they've had to you know they set up the makeshift hospitals and things. So yeah, absolutely. That was probably not in anybody's ever <laughs>
1: you No, <know>, or mass <laughs> graves in New York. Yeah. Who would have ever, and not even in the worst pandemic movies, horror movies that we've seen, would you ever see that that sort of thing? You have to consider.
0: Yeah, and you see the, um, you know, the funeral directors and funeral parlors talking about um, their capacity as well, saying that you know they don't even have enough um, uh, coffins and supplies yeah. themselves, and it's you just don't even think of the ripple effect down to that granular level. Um, When you're planning for these sorts of things, you never plan for those sorts of things.
1: But that's the point. So if you have an incident management capability that is really good at that, so to understand, okay, these are going to be the consequences. We're going to have lots of this. In order to process those, what do we need? We need um, uh, what do you call the processing homes? Do you need the uh, the graves? You need um, this and that, and you understand all those resources that you would need. Then you identify how much do we have available? Are there any gaps? What do they need? in order to achieve their outcomes, and are there any gaps? If you've done that there and you map that clearly with a centralised incident management team that has the authority to deal with it, then you can be proactive. Yeah. And now you're reactive because... All these new problems keep popping up, and they keep going. Oh, I oh, hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I suppose. But
0: yeah. you would have had lead um, indicators earlier on and earlier Absolutely. detection processes to go. Okay, well, we we knew we only had uh, this many funeral parlors in the area. They all have this many coffins, and so now, as we see an increase and in spike in um, death rates, then we we know by default we're going to need x amount more, or yep. and start preparing that for that in, yeah early
1: and that was exactly what australia did really really well they tried to flatten the curve early so that because they knew if this hits this target of deaths we need this many uh, of this we need this many of that and they started to get that all in place keep the curve flat and get that all in place that if it hits we've got it already and mm-hmm. that was really really i mean hats off that disaster management was excellent
0: I think, too, they realised quite early on they didn't have enough um, PPE to even facilitate this. No. So if that, if that plan didn't come off, um, maybe plan B or C or D was not going to ever be effective because they just didn't have access to it. So then you actually end up seeing um, an opportunity in the market for other suppliers that might not have even, um, you know, new entrants that... Uh, using their three D printers and developing um, safety masks, and uh, gin companies developing hand sanitizer, <laughs> and you know, thinking outside the box and really just seeing that opportunity um, to fill those gaps.
1: And that's what I find the wonderful thing of any disaster. There's always an opportunity linked to it, and that's why it's so important for organisations to understand. Okay, this is this looks really really bad, but what are we go- what are we good at, and how can we? Like The old, very old example, for example, of Holden, it used to be a salary com- uh, saddlery company, like making saddles for horses and stuff, and then um, very successful, but then the car was introduced, so and nobody needs saddle, um, so they they could have gone, oh, well, you know, that's the end of us, let's pack up, go home, but then they started to think, okay, so what are we really, really good at? Okay, good at working with leather. Okay, well, we started making the seats for the car, and that's how they become Holden, right? So... And that, that that was, until recently, very successful here in Australia. So that's the thing of thinking, okay, this looks really bad, but I can really turn this to my advantage by just feeling really smart about what the opportunities are. What are you good at and how does that work in this particular situation?
0: Yeah, it's when that saying, um, never waste a crisis, comes <laughs> into play, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's really, really good. So in terms of... Um panic response. So with your collaboration in the aged care sector, how far and wide are they really considering? Are they thinking, uh, you know, what happens if it was an earthquake situation on top of a pandemic and you then um, look at, well, okay, what sort of um, government response do we have? What sort of uh, UN type response do we have? If our government's wiped out, if our um, emergency services or you know, defence forces are wiped out. What other access do we have to maybe um, foreign partners and things like that? Like, how wide do you spread the net?
1: Well, luckily in Australia they have got excellent um, escalation criteria and procedures. So if the, if the local council runs out of resources, then it goes to the state. If the state, then it goes federal. If federal's running out of resources, then it comes internationally. Um, and, and they've got that mapped out really, really well in Australia, so we're fortunate for that. If you have operations in other countries, it might not be that way, and then you really have to think about, okay, if we have a large-scale disaster in this particular country, what does that mean? Who would be able to respond? How do we liaise with them? So have those relationships pre-prepared, that's all I'm trying to say, so that you understand if there is a crisis of a certain scale of complexity um, or type, then I would need these sort of partners to liaise with. But if it gets to this level, I would need these sort of partners to liaise with. So if you go to Australian levels, you would um, make sure that you have those Australian escalation levels and and organisations, which are very clearly um, explained in all the disaster management plans. That's excellent, very well. Um, communicated, but in other countries you would have to really work out the local context.
0: And how does that work too? Like, if you're, um, I guess, a partner to a foreign country, and they've got a disaster and you've deployed your assets there, how does that work then when you might need to call them home? It's sort of a conflict of interest because you want to keep them at home, but you, you know, how are the capacity levels really measured in that situation as well?
1: Uh, you mean when you have um, expats? People that are working there from uh, the nationality of the country or
0: people that... No. So, say if there was a disaster in East Timor and Australian troops are deployed there to fix that, but then suddenly we have our own disasters at home, Mm -hmm. what happens there? Do we call them back? Do we pull our help? Do we... I mean, yes. it might not even be, You might not even know the answer. Um, it's no, but probably that a technical is, um, government response.
1: But. Yeah, no, that that all comes down to incident management. And you can. that's the same as, as you would do for an organisation. Okay, I've got these different problems going on. I've got a limited amount of resources. I think of what the consequences would be for each decision. So if I leave them there, these would be the consequences for my country, but I would do this great thing over there. If I'd bring them back, then I would... Um, uh, assist here, but there will be the consequences, and just work out those consequences and then make the best decision. Yeah. In a disaster, there is no optimal decision. No. You just make the best decision with the best information that you have at that point in time, and you have to be quick about it because the longer you wait, the more less options you have available to you. So that's the difficulty, the, the yeah. conundrum between <laughs> time and options. It is.
2: It's the capability, <laughs> the capacity, yeah. the resource.
1: And, and that's the a juggling constant act. Yeah. juggling act uh, in incident management, absolutely.
2: I think communication is key too. I think Jacinta Ardern has been doing an amazing job, firstly, when they had the terrorist attack and, and with COVID-19 too. She's just been empathetic and communicating a yes. lot.
1: Yes, what's going on? Why, is it, why are we doing this? What are the benefits? Strong leadership, unity in the country. Um, I think Australia did an all right job as well, but in uh, certain other countries you can see if the leadership is not it's constantly changing its mind or it's not clear or it's not even supporting what health officials are saying, then you can see that, that, that it all starts to fall apart uh, very, very quickly. You need strong leadership. You need consultative leadership. So you do need someone in a leadership position that, again, consults all the different experts, considers all the different options that you have to respond to, what the consequences are of that and then takes a decisive decision and runs with that and really explains to to the the community, to to all stakeholders what that means and that we're going to stick with this, but it will be great at the end because these and these are the consequences. Very good understanding of why decisions are being made.
0: Yeah, it's a leading change piece, isn't it? You know, 100% input and 100% agreement and, um, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, yes, she does an excellent job of that. Absolutely.
0: I think, too, she made the decisions quite quickly early on. You know, she could... Kind of envisaged that it was going to play out the way it did and um, took the hard line straight away mm-hmm. instead of sort of, I guess, just waiting and sort of anticipating what might happen and allowing it to become a bigger problem.
1: Yeah, she has great insight of, of consequences early on because um, I think a lot of people, especially in COVID 19, were just could not believe that this could be the case. So waited way too long because, you know, Australians are like, oh, it'll be right. It'll be right, that'll never happen, it'll be fine. But um, it wasn't. And you know, that. that's where, again, you, those indicators that you can see that something going down a certain path, that you act on those early, the earlier the better.
0: And have you seen some really poor examples of, um, you know, resilience planning and risk management? Because really it comes back to um, the overall governance framework and that reporting line uh, sort of... To the board, where they're going to be making the decisions, but the sort of making sure it doesn't miss a certain channel on the way up the line and the way back down the line—that's where I think the big disconnect comes. But have you seen a really, uh, really great examples or really poor examples of in the governance? response to this? We're just in governance in general and yeah. um, resilience planning in general. Um, I think the the excellent examples
1: are where uh, the the people managing the risk within the organisation are uh, skilled and experienced and trained to understand risk. Because you can't tell someone, identify a risk or manage a risk that doesn't have the risk awareness. And it's something that really comes over time of with training or with experience. It's not something that's per se natural. Um, so that they have that and then that capability to to explain it to the board, what the risks are, why this is happening, why you need to take these measures and, and explain that. And then it's very important that that... Trust comes back and the support comes back, because people will only raise so many times that something needs to happen. If they get back high, that'll be right. That'll never happen. No, you're not getting any money for that or that. Then people start to lose faith in the system, I suppose, and that's where it starts to fall down, because then the board doesn't start doesn't hear about it anymore, um, because people think there's no point anyway, or for the leadership team there's no point anyway. They don't really care anyway, Um, and then. It just doesn't work. So it's that, that, that really knowledge and understanding and ability to explain it up and then the really the support and, um, and understanding down. And it doesn't mean you just have to throw money at everything. You have to scrutinize it. Absolutely. You have to scrutinize every idea. But you do have to make sure that you support. And if you don't give funding for a risk treatment strategy, then really explain why. We have really considered is excellent that you brought this forward and, and we do understand that there's a risk there. We think it's under the risk um, appetite because we can put this in place and with these measures, just clear communication around that. I think that's where it works really, really well. If you don't do that, it really starts to fall down.
0: Yeah, they might just want to accept the risk uh, as low as practical at that time and maybe just um, transfer it by obtaining an insurance which might Mm. be cheaper in the long run and then they can work on the risk treatment in the background.
1: And I also think another important point is if the leadership team keeps um, postponing the risk meetings or putting it as a last agenda point or not really saying that it's important that everyone has to update their risk register but then don't update their part of it, that's a really bad message. You always have to lead by example. And really demonstrate, because I've been in those meetings, especially when you come near an organisation where the CEO is joking about, you know, this is so boring or this is so stupid, you know, like those sort of things. They have no idea, the message that sends, how strong that is. I've seen these organisations where the CEO or the executive is really committed and then everyone will work, the the, the, the achievements are so much greater than when the CEO is, well, it's not really important anyway. Just a tick in the box. Guys, just a tick in the box. <laughs> you know, and then you're not going to get anywhere. you're honestly not going to get anywhere.
2: I think we've all worked in organisations. <laughs> um, it's all them.
1: about believing, believing, making everyone passionate about something and, and, and then and committing to it and, and all sharing the benefits. And I think that's very important. Lead by example.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges um, in risk management roles I've had is... Um, Uh, increasing that awareness and it's sort of um, there's a lack of understanding in terms of definitions so um, there's a lot of people who just want to um, uh, view it as residual risk when really it's theoretical right it's if you had all these things in place that's where your residual risk would lead but you really have to measure it on a current basis as well as a residual basis and kind of see that mapped on the same um, risk heat map to really get an appreciation of, okay, well, is this as low as we can possibly get that risk? And are we happy to accept it at that level? Or can we get it lower? Or um, or, or if you're reporting on residual risk, people become complacent, go, oh, no, that, that risk is being managed. And it's like, well, no, if you look at it from a current basis, you're actually over here, but it's that lack of understanding between inherent, current, Residual. It's terminology in general, really.
1: It's sometimes over... Like these debates, I'm sure you've been involved in them. Is it a three or a four? And you sit there for an hour going on about, is it a three or a four? Yeah, does it really matter right now? But um, yeah, that's that's when people start to really despise risk management. When you get down, bogged down in those sort of discussions. So make it as least technical as possible and just let it live, those top risks, work on those, make it really enthusiastic that you're treating those risks. That's much better than those technicalities around And I think, too, ratings. it's
0: um, getting people to understand what elements they play into the overall strategy and what parts are foundational and operational in terms of, you know, I try to position it to um, execs in uh, sort of a bit of a vision and an analogy in terms of, well, if... The strategy is the journey and the road you take to get there and we've all agreed on the end destination. Well, the obstacles along the way are the things that are managed by management and, um, say, if you have a really large organisation, you might be leading a train and the CEO is the driver and each of the business units, there's an exec responsible for each of the carriages and some of those carriages might fall off, whether it's HR or IT or whatever and if you lost that part of the train are you still going to get there and um, making sure have you got the right fuel have you got the right equipment have you got are you maintaining the wheels and things like that are you maintaining the tracks and when you sort of position it like that they go oh yeah that okay that's okay and you know in the risk management sort of framework is well who's responsible to put the fuel in the in the vehicle and who's responsible for monitoring the track and when everyone understands what part of um the overall journey they're managing, I think it's a lot easier to help them um, report back on the bit that's in their remit, but also see it from the whole sort of journey perspective as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you're absolutely right what you mentioned with uh, who's doing the maintenance, because we all know a plan and like all these, you come into this organisation and they one year where they did all the policies and procedures and, and plans and whatever, but then three years later they're completely out of date. But it's still in the risk as this risk is treated because I have these plans and policies and procedures in place. But you, your processes have changed, people have changed, uh, resources have changed, uh, we're using different technology now and the, those procedures and plans don't reflect that yet. So your risk has increased without being reflected in in your risk register.
2: And we've seen a lot of regulatory change across all different industries as well, so that has a huge impact on them as well.
1: And that's so, especially in the HK sector, I find that, the compliance department. So the overheads in aged care are clearly very low already. I mean, um, the, the the cost of labour and all the cost that comes with an aged, running an aged care facility are huge. But then the compliance, a list of regulations and everything, they, they kind of made it easier now with the latest aged care quality standard, but there's still so many things you have to consider and, and work out and all the standards and guidelines. And then it says you read that one and it says reference to this particular checklist and then you go to that checklist and then there's another reference to this legislation and it becomes this. <laughs> how do you even work it out? And that's, uh, that's I think, the responsibility of the regulators as well to make sure that you're very clear on the expectations of an organisation because the organisation doesn't necessarily have the resources to... to Go through all these documentations and and laws and regulations to really work out what then for applies for their facility and then work out the right terminology like health and safety law. When okay, so I'm I employ people, but a contractor whether they sit and you have to try and work that out. It's just so complex.
0: They don't necessarily have the systems either in place to be able to monitor those.
1: No, no, and that's what I'm saying. Like the finance industry that's we're also working in with the latest um, commissioner for inquiry uh, that's... the Royal Commission, all the changes that came out of that, to try and stay on top of that is so difficult. That's a difficult one. (laughs)
0: And I think too, you find a lot um, boards become complacent. They become so focused on financial risk and um, profitability that they forget to think about the non-financial emerging risks as well and it was highlighted in the Royal Commission uh, culture and Climate change and, um, well, not necessarily in the Royal Commission for that one, but climate change and modern slavery reporting and all those other things that they don't even consider as risks until um, they're knocking on their door going, well, this is potentially reputational damage, penalty damage, regulator relationship damage, erosion of trust, increase of public scrutiny, all those
1: things... It's huge, the, the, the secondary costs related to an install. Like, if, for example, if you look at Volkswagen, they're promoting themselves as this environmentally friendly, integer company, and their whole branding, and, and in it they had very strong um, a brand reputation. And then they get found out for something that is clearly all the way to the top because something does not accidentally come into a car. No, not. <laughs> and that is clearly uh, okay. We're not environmentally friendly. We're actually trying to trick you to make it look so environmentally friendly. Um, that completely undermines how we look this brand. So they have to fix the problem of those things being in cars. They have to fix their reputation. They have to go legal fees through the roof. Um, and it affects on every aspect of their operation. And on a strategic level, um, for something like that.
2: And it's not easy to fix the reputation either. No, no. We've once got that. rebuild the trust all over again.
1: Yes, and that is something that takes so long to rebuild uh, to build trust. And then something like that where you just lie to people, plainly lie. And they're the regulators, you're lying, and that's, that's, yeah, that's um, difficult to recover from. But that, the secondary cost of such an incident is significant.
0: So I guess for organisations that don't necessarily um, look at resilience and risk management and business continuity planning and want to uh, obtain independent uh, assessments or advice, what sort of are the top three tips that you could give those types of organisations to at least increase their awareness initially? Um, well, first I'd like to
1: say um, the, the organisation, one of our customers that are got through the whole cycle um, with, they did it, started with risk management. In the risk management, we identified, okay, there's certain aspects of health and safety we need to improve, certain aspects of quality management we need to improve. Uh, so those risk treatment plans got into play, that we have to treat these risks. So they started to treat those risks, and then they actually wanted to expand their business um, in, a certain, uh, extended, uh, in, in a certain direction And because they had all these procedures already in place, they had a fantastic risk management procedure that was written. Um, They had their governance arrangements around that. They had their procedures because of the quality management system. They could put on all their safe... This proposal went out in like a a day because they had everything done already. And they looked fantastic because they had passed audits. They had put all these systems in place and and had all this um, acknowledgement already of the risk treatments they put in place that positioned them in a really good... Uh, way to to expand their business. So if you think that that risk management is not going to bring you in a better position to expand your business, then, I mean, it is is the key to expanding your business. And the same, um, that organization that I worked with in Afghanistan, when I came with them, uh, they had just won uh, the first contract for one site. There was no policies, procedures in place yet. There was nothing in place yet. We're just starting operations. And um, I was responsible for uh, quality health, safety and environment and later also risk and emergency management. Um, But I put all those systems in place and that's how we won all the other contracts. And within four years, we were the largest supplier in Afghanistan as well. We were operations in Somalia and Kosovo. We were doing disaster relief in Haiti because we had built this really strong uh, governance system, really strong quality management system. We were actually speaking on international conferences on... How good our system was, and how clean the fuel was, because we could prove it. And 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 the management and the leadership really um, supported that. Put the, the the resources into building that system and and and, and pr- looking at all the data that was coming in. So we had KPIs not just for the, the the quality of the fuel. We had KPIs for procurement, finance, just the overarching for for the business. Um, we had management reports. It all came on a quality management. Um, and, and we implemented the improvements and cascaded it back down. So we used that whole system to build the business from just one contract to contracts across uh, multiple countries, multiple projects. And that's this stuff has value. This stuff puts you in an excellent position. And also we had an incident once um, where, where there was an air crash and they, they thought it was the fuel. And they come into your facility and we had all the checks and balances done. Um, all staff was trained all equipment was calibrated samples were retained daily checks were done um, everything was in place they could see uh, records and reports back dating back three months so we were cleared straight away Um, and that's where the value comes in of those sort of things it always sounds like oh it's just a a paper generating activity or it's just so uh, but it it's not it it protects your business and it makes sure it sets you up for, uh, for growth because you know all this information and when you go for a proposal, all this information needs to be there.
0: Mm. And I think too, like the excitement for me comes from, um, you know, the ISO uh, actually now looking at um, governance and hopefully that comes out soon and uh, whistleblower programs, etc., mm-hmm. and how they tie back into quality management, health and safety um risk and kind of really aligning them all and uh, making it all hum together because then that feeds into um, our model where um, we really see that governance sits around all of your things, your strategy, your leadership, your culture, the behaviours, the um, sort of operational risk management side and really having an encompassing um, governance framework that sits around that. So, if we have an ISO to work to in that space, it makes our jobs so much easier.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, because then it's very clear what the steps are, what needs to be done. Yep, you're compliant, and then you can also get that tick in a box. Because in um, most of the countries that are operated in, there's not that much regulatory um, monitoring going on. So they want some co- customers want some confidence that you're doing the right thing. So then they'll start asking for ISO certificates, because so at least they know someone went in here, someone checked something, <laughs> and found it okay. It's better. At least you have some sort of assurance, right? That the right thing is being done better than somebody just saying, yep, we've got great systems in place. Cause we all know you can say anything.
2: (laughs) It's been validated. Yeah.
1: It's been validated. So that's very important.
2: Well,
0: I think that, um, probably wraps up where we're at today. And, uh, Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show, Lisa, and sharing all your valuable (laughs) insights. It's um, always great to speak to someone who uh, feels as passionate about risk and resilience and governance as much as what we do. So thank you so much. Thank Thank you very much
1: for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Lisa.
0: Thank you. That's all for today. Until next time, happy podcasting. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, check out our other episodes and all things governance at www.threewiseowls.com.au.